Okay, this is the Shir Lilu Nishmot and Ephraim Shmob and Avramaria Cohen. Chaya Tova Bas Eliezer Mendel HaKohen on the Book of Yechetzkel. It's been a couple of weeks, um, so just to uh, a backdrop to where we are, we're in Chapter 6 of Yechetzkel, which is a particular chapter, uh, as the first part of, it, of Yechetzkel really is, uh, a really dark uh, chapter in Jewish history. Uh, but in Chapter 6 specifically, uh, the, the prophet Yechezkel, through the words of God, is describing God's feelings about um, paganism, about, about the Zorah, uh, idol worship. And uh, we started to look at verse 9 last time, um, and uh, just the first of the chapter discussed the mountains, that uh, Yechezkel should pray to the mountains, and we discussed what the mountains represented in Judaism, the mountains represented the um, the Avot, the Patriarchs and the Matriarchs, it also represented places where God had performed uh, countless miracles to the Jewish people, and yet that's the place, that's the particular place where the Jews decided to worship idols, at the highest place on the mountains, they worshipped the sun, they worshipped their uh, Avodah Zorah, they had the meeting with, uh, with Elio Anovi, um, with all the prophets of Baal, and this was the complaint in the first part of the chapter. Here in, in verse 9, we have a very interesting verse and a very interesting word, which we're going to <coughs> take a long look at. But uh, just the, the verse itself, chapter th- 6, verse 9. V'zochru plitechem osu bagoyim, asher nishbusho. Those that, you, that will escape those that will escape the invasion of the Babylonians into Yehuda and into Yushalayim will remember me uh, when you're amongst the nations where you are exiled to. And how I broke the, the, their hearts because of their faithless, faithlessness um, when they turned away from me. And through their eyes, which lusted after their idols, but not kotu bifnehem, and they will loathe, they'll struggle with themselves, al for all the evil that they committed, and for all the abominable, abominable deeds that they did in relation to their pagan worship. So, uh, it's uh, the the great cry goes up from God. Too late, too late shall be the cry. That only after the Jews are uh, invaded, only after Yehuda is invaded and Yushalayim is captured and destroyed, and the Jews are in exile, will they realize what they've done to themselves? Not only what they've done to themselves, um, what they've done to everybody what they've done to the world, because the base of Middush is a defensive mechanism for the whole world, not just for the Jewish people. So I'll just review the first, the, right, the, the, the point that I was making right at the end of the last year, two weeks ago. The positive starts off by saying, that When you get into exile, that's when you remember God. <laughs> that's the, uh, the typical reaction of human beings. You know, after you've been sent to the, the headmaster's office and he's given you a beating, 
or he's giving you the stripes, or he's giving you detention, or he's giving you uh, whatever punishment, that's when you remember what you've, what you've done wrong. That's when you reflect. But of course, that's always too late. Too late, too late shall be the cry. So Rashi uh, says that finally, only after being sent into exile, will these Jews remember and reflect on God's kindness and God's compassion that God displayed uh, for over 800 years benevolence and patience, Erech when they committed such terrible crimes right in front of God, in God's land. Um, and the very fact that God yielded to them, God allowed them so much time to repent and do teshuva, um, despite the fact that their hearts went astray and they turned away from God, God said, I begged them through the prophets, countless prophets, one after the other, to do teshuva, to return, um, and through the prophets, I promise that uh, God says, I promise that, uh, you know, all you've got to do is say sorry, and uh, we'll call it quits. But ultimately, they were unwilling or unable to listen, and now they flat find themselves in exile. And it says, They'll struggle with themselves, they'll loathe themselves. It says the Malbim, it's, uh, as a result of all the paganism that had been going on for hundreds of years, there will be an acceptance that this is the reason why all these terrible things are happening to him. Um, that self-realization that everything they are suffering now is a, is, a, is a result of their own decisions to adopt uh, pagan worship, first in the northern kingdom, which was led off into exile by the Assyrians, and now in the southern kingdom, which was led off into exile by the Babylonians, and there's no one to blame but themselves. At that point, says the Malvin, they'll regret. Now, regret is very good. Anyone that says, you hear people on TV saying, you know, You've had a long life, and have you got any... No, he's got no regrets. Anyone that's got no regrets is a fool, because the whole purpose of life is to understand the mistakes that you've made and learn from them. If you don't believe you've made any mistakes, you've got no regrets, then you've obviously not learned from those mistakes. But the Jews will regret, and this is a, a fact of history. When the Jews got to Babylonia, they did regret their actions. And they did reject the pagan lifestyle they practiced in Yehuda and Yushalayim. Um, and they did do a form of teshuva. And they never reverted to paganism again. But by that time it was too late. And uh, these, these last two or three points that the Malbin makes are very important. That uh, there was a recognition when the Jews went to Babylonia and the Jewish population in Babylonia increased um, to a huge amount. Uh, as many as 2 million people, uh, Jews, lived in Babylonia, there was a sense of regret among the people, among the population, the Jewish population. And they did regret that pagan lifestyle. And they did do a form of teshuva. And they never reverted to that paganism again. Never. Um, different, small groups within the Jewish people did, but as a nation... Uh, the Jewish people never reverted to paganism ever again. Um, but of course, for the sake of that generation that went into exile in Babylonia, it was too late. 
because Yerushalayim had already been destroyed, the country had already been captured, and it would not return to Jewish autonomy for another two and a half thousand years, until 1948. And, um, of course, you know, two and a half thousand years is two and a half thousand years. Um, what's interesting is, the, the in the book of Daniel, I'll just tell you a secret, um, in the book of Daniel, um, one of the questions that Daniel asks is, how long will the exile be? You know, he's he's living in Babylonia. He's living in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. And he wants to know when the Jews will return to the land of Israel. He wants to know when um, the Mashiach is going to come. He wants to know when the resurrection of the dead will occur. He wants to know when the Jews will have autonomy over the land of Israel. So many questions. A dozen questions he's got. And his angel, Daniel, wasn't a prophet, so he received the majority of his messages either through dreams or through the words of angels. One of the answers the angels gave him was 2,300. That was the answer to one of your questions. The angel said to him, the answer to one of your questions is 2,300. Now the answers that were given to Daniel regarding all the questions that he asked remained sasum, remained closed. We don't know what the answers mean. And we can't even relate the answers to the questions. Which particular answers relate to which particular questions? But when the when the angel said to him 2,300, uh, we can do a bit of a calculation. Because Daniel uh, it makes an appeal to God two years before the Jews were allowed to return to the land of Israel. Which is in about the year 352 BCE. Now... Uh, the year 352, this is according to Rashi, Rashi's calculation. Um, if, you, if you take the year 352 BCE and take it all the way through uh, to 1948, um, that's 2,300. So it could be the answer to one of Daniel's questions, which was, how long will it be till the Jews have autonomy, complete autonomy over the land of Israel? <clears throat> the answer to that question could have been 2,300 years. Because literally 2,300 years after Daniel's prayer, uh, the, the, the state of Israel was declared. So I'm not saying it's correct, I'm just making an observation. But the point is, uh, regarding this verse, uh, as the Malman po- uh, points out, there was a form of regret. and There was never any national, there was individual groups that reverted to paganism during the time of the Second Temple period. But there was never any national movement for paganism in the land of Israel after the exile into Babylonia. But, as I said, it all, it's all coming too late. This recognition, and this harata, this regret, is all coming too late. Now, I want to deal with this particular word that occurs in this posuk, uh, the word is Vodnokotu. Vodnokotu is a very strange word. Uh, we translated it when we, when we translated the verse, Vodnokotu bifnehem el sehem. And the, when the people get into Babylonia, into exile, they'll loathe themselves, they'll struggle with themselves about all the evil that they committed and all the abominable deeds they did when they were worshipping idols, when they were pagans. Now this word Vodnokotu, Rashi says it describes the infighting, 
that will go on in the diaspora about who was to blame. Now, whenever trouble strikes a nation, whether it's economic or geopolitical or military, there's always, uh, after the fact, after the tragedy, after the disaster, there's always a blame game. Um, Someone's always to blame. There has to be someone to blame. And um, this word, Venakotu, Rashi says, describes that infighting, the infighting that will go on in the diaspora, and it will go on in the diaspora right through the exiles of the Jewish people. That though, whenever tragedy strikes the Jewish people, there'll be this infighting, looking for reasons why bad things happened, and looking for victims, people to blame for the evil that has overtaken the Jews. And this is uh, something that's brought out in Tehillim. Uh, the longest uh, chapter in Tehillim is chapter 119. So it's a long chapter. So you have to go all the way through to uh, the chapter and you come to verse 158. And David Amelach says, I saw traitors, and I quarreled with them, because they did not keep to your word. Um, and so this word, Rashi says, comes from the same root, it's a, a language of infighting and uh, disharmony and blame game. The blame game that goes on among the Jewish people till today. Right? So, uh, you know, anything happens in the land of Israel, so someone's got to be to blame. So, uh, um, you know, 1973, uh, we're caught unawares in the battle in the War of the Yom Kippur, so someone's, someone was to blame. Whenever tragedy strikes... Um, the Jewish people, there always has to be somebody to blame. And it's not only true of the Jewish people, it's true of everywhere in the world. Uh, everybody wants a scapegoat. Uh, the problem is that throughout history, uh, the regular scapegoat has been the Jews uh, in the diaspora. And the worst thing that can happen is the Jews fighting among themselves as well. But this is what uh, Rashi says it means, but not to, that when the Jews are in exile, they'll fight among themselves looking for people to blame. Um, Others say that this word Venokotu describes a person's inner struggle with himself to discover the hard truth truth about his own behaviour and the loathing a person feels about his past actions after an honest reflection, something we're supposed to do before Rosh Hashanah, uh, the realisation and the admittance of severe errors in judgement, something, again, that's very hard for a person to do, to look in the mirror, recognise his own mistakes and uh, and uh, come to the realization and admit to himself that he'd ma- he's made severe errors, errors in judgment that not only have cost him but have cost other people as well. Uh, something the Jews in exile will come to reflect on, and when they rationalize and ultimately reject paganism, um, uh, they'll realize that is the solution: the rejection of paganism, uh, and that is what has caused all this suffering. But of course, from the perspective of the exile in Babylonia, that's all come too late. Um, so everyone agrees, all the commentators agree that this, this type of narkotu, that they either be infighting or there'll be um, uh, inner struggle amongst the Jewish people uh, to try and recognize their own shortcomings.
the question is, uh, and this this is this actually took place, and it actually led to a rebirth of Torah uh, in Babylonia, which eventually, uh, through the ages, um, the Jews obviously came back and rebuilt the Second Temple, but the majority of the Jews of, of Babylonia that were exiled there stayed there, and they built institution, institutions, and they built formidable institutions, and they built uh, close connections to the government. And uh, ultimately, that would lead to a rebirth of Torah, uh, probably the greatest rebirth of Torah um, uh, right up until, you know, the 1950s and the 1960s. It resulted in the, re- the rebirth of Torah in Babylonia, um, the building of yeshivas, the learning and uh, essentially it would lead to the writing down of the oral law and the Mishnah and the Gemara. And so it could be without this exile in Babylonia and this, this rebirth, this nokotu, this inner struggle, that the Jews had an inner struggle with themselves, none of that would have been possible. But uh, it was possible and it did take place. Uh, and it eventually led to huge institutions of learning. Uh, both in Babylonia and then subsequently in the land of Israel. The yeshivas of Surah, uh, the yeshivas of Nahardoya, these are both in uh, Baghdad, southern Baghdad and northern Baghdad, the yeshiva of Pumpadisa, the yeshiva of Mahuza. These were huge institutions. The, unit, the yeshiva of Surah uh, had 12,000 students. It would be bigger than the biggest yeshiva, in the, twice as big as the biggest yeshiva in the world today. And it lasted... It it uh, it continued for 850 years. So, on the one hand, the exile dealt a cruel blow to the Jewish people, but it also gave them pause for thought and pause for reflection. And that pause for reflection uh, eventually led to a rebirth in Torah, a Baal Teshuvah. I would call it the first Baal Teshuvah movement. Uh, the second Baal Teshuvah movement is the one that we're experiencing today. But the, that was the first Baal Teshuvah movement. But the question is, what made the Jews reject idolatry, reject Avodah and paganism so suddenly? They'd been worshipping idols on and off since they came into the land in 1273 BCE. That was for 850 years earlier. And then suddenly, um, uh, towards the end, it started before the end of the Babylonian exile, but towards the end of the Babylonian exile, uh, as they built the second base of Migdosh, there was a huge rebirth under Ezra, uh, and in, um, in, in uh, Babylonia as well, under Baruch ben Neria, and under Chiyichesko. Um So what was the catalyst that made the Jews reject idolatry? What was it that made them reject uh, that lifestyle that they loved so much for so many years? After all, the Jews in both the northern and southern kingdoms had practiced paganism, as I said, for on and off for 850 years. Um, and uh, again, since they arrived in the land of Israel in the year 1273 BCE. So the Gomorrah in Yuma... Um, the, the Gemara there on uh, in Yuma on Daf Samach Tes on page sixty nine B discusses a, a verse from Nehemiah. Nehemiah is one of these characters who we'll deal with later as well. Uh, Nehemiah is the strongest, one of the strongest men in Jewish history. 
a man who wasn't prepared to compromise anything. He didn't believe in compromise. He, he was the man that came back. He was the uh, chief of staff, one of the chief of staffs of the Persian army. He led a Persian army back from Persia into Yerushalayim to defend the newly built Jerusalem and the newly built Second Temple. And uh, he stayed. He stayed uh, until Jerusalem was secure, and then he returned to Babylonia. His army, most of them non-Jewish Persians, converted to Judaism and married Jewish women. But Nehemiah instituted laws inside Yerushalayim. And uh, he introduced the rules that uh, shops couldn't be open on Shabbos. No transportation on Shabbos. That everything had to be kosher. Everything had to be certified. That people had to go to shul. That people had to be educated in Judaism. Which again, was a catalyst for the rebirth of Judaism inside um, the land of Israel. As it was being reborn inside of Babylonia at the same time. Uh, Chemi was a very hard man. Anyone who didn't tow his line was exiled from Yushalayim. Kohanim who were married to non-Jews or had non-Jewish children or had uh, were married to divorcees were thrown out. People who opened their shops on Shabbos were exiled outside out of Yushalayim, were kicked out. No, there was no compromise. Um, so, and we'll discuss more about Nehemiah uh, a little bit later on in the book. But Yo, uh, the Gemara in Yuma discusses a, perf- a, uh, a particular verse in Nehemiah in the ninth, ninth chapter, in the fourth verse of Nehemiah. It says, Vayokom al-Male Halavir. And onto the steps where the Levites stood, Yeshua uvon, uvn, uh, 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 Uvoni. Yeshua and Boni. Kadmiel Shvanya Buni. Kadmiel Shvanya Buni. Shravya Boni. Knoni. All these Levim got up onto the Duchen of the Beis HaMikdosh, Vayizaku Bakol Godol El Hashem Elokechem, and they cried, cried out with a loud voice to their God. These were all allies of Nehemiah, they were uh, Levim, and some say some of them were Kohanim, but they were certainly from the tribe of Levi, and the Potsdam says that they stood up, they got up onto the Duchen in the newly built Beis HaMikdosh, and they cried out with a loud, loud voice. The Gemara asked the question, what did they cry out? So, well, you know, the apostle doesn't tell you what they cried. So the Gemara says, Omar Rav, Omar Rav, Omar Rav Yochanan. Boyi, boyi, woe to us, woe to us. It is the Yetzirah for Avodah It's the evil inclination for paganism that destroyed the temple and burned the sanctuary and murdered the righteous, and caused the Jewish people to be exiled from their land. And it still dances among us. It still affects us. Why didn't you, God, give us, why did you, uh, God, give us this Yetzirah for paganism? Was it solely for the purpose of of our receiving reward for overcoming it? The truth is, says the Gemara, Lo ihu be'inon, velo agri be'inon. These Kohanim stood on the Duchen and they said, we don't want it. We don't want the Yetzirah, the evil inclination for Avodah Zorah, for paganism. 
Lo ihu bi'inon, we don't want the Yetzirah. Velo agria bi'inon, and we don't want the reward for rejecting and denying its seduction. That's what they cried out. That the, 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 the whole source of the struggles of the Jewish people over the last hundred years, the destruction of Yerushalayim under the Babylonians, the destruction of the base of Migdosh, the burning of the base of Migdosh, the exile into Babylonia, it's all as a result of what you put inside of us. A Yetzahora, a, uh, uh, evil inclination from Avodah Lo ihu bi'inon, velo agri bi'inon, they shouted. We don't want it. We don't want that Yetzahora, that seductive voice for Avodah And velo igri bi'inon. We don't want the reward that comes with rejecting that seduction. Um, and the Gomorrah says, um, in response to their, their cries, the cries of these Levian and maybe some Kohanim, a note fell to them from heaven upon which the word was written, Emes, indicating that God had accepted their request. In response uh, to the indication of divine acceptance, they observed a fast for three days and three nights, and God destroyed or God delivered the evil inclination to them. Uh, uh, the Gomorrah says, a form of a fiery lying cub flew out of the newly built Kodesh Kadoshim. Remember, they just newly built the second temple, and they were standing on the Duchen in the Heichal, in the hallway, and uh, they fasted for three days and three nights, rejecting, asking God, to hand the Yetzirah, the evil inclination for idolatry, into their hands. After three days, a fiery lion club, cub flew out of the newly built Kodesh Kadoshim, Holy of Holies. Zechariah, who was the prophet, and uh, as we'll see later, one of the last of the prophets, Zechariah the prophet said to the Jewish people, what you can see now, this fiery lion cub, is the Yetzirah for idol worship. Um, as it says in the verse in Zechariah, uh, who refers to this event, Vayoma Zos Horashah. Zechariah said, This is the evil one. And uh, the Gemara says the use of the word Zos, this, indicates that the evil inclination was perceived in a physical form. Uh, Zos. Zos is something you can point to, a physical um, item that you can point to. Zos. They could point to it and look at it. And the Yetzirah for Avodah Zorah, the evil inclination for um, apostasy and uh, idol worship and paganism, was in their hands. When they caught hold of it, says the Gemara, one of its hairs fell out. One of the hairs of this lion cub fell out. And it let out a shriek of pain that was heard for miles. They said among themselves, what shall we do with it? Do we kill it? Um, uh, they said, perhaps, God forbid, they will have mercy upon it in heaven, because it's crying out so much. And the prophet Zechariah said to them, throw it into the container made of lead, and seal the opening with lead, since lead absorbs sound, as it says in the continuation of the verse in Zechariah, Vayashlech oso el tocho eifor, Vayashlech es evan hoaferes el piho. And they cast it down into the, into this this uh, lead container, 
and they put lead weights into the mouth of the container. Um, so the, it's, uh, it's an allegorical tale, but uh, it's telling you something about how the nature of humanity changed. Having followed the advice, the Gemara continues, they were free, free from the evil inclination, the Yetzirah, for idol worship. When they saw that the evil inclination for idol worship was delivered into their hands, they requested the rabbis, since it's an auspicious time, let us pray also concerning the evil inclination for the sin of, uh, in the area of sexual relationships, which is also a terrible abode, which we know still till today is a terrible uh, Yetzirah, terrible temptation for everybody. Uh, the Gemara says, Eina Petropis Larias. There's no protection from the sin of sexual relationships. Every, no one's immune from it. So they prayed, and God delivered the evil inclination for sexual impropriety into their hands as well. And Zechariah the prophet said to them, Look, see, and understand that if you kill this evil inclination, the world will be destroyed. Because as a result, there'll be no longer be any desire to procreate. And they followed his warning. And instead of ki- killing the evil inclination uh, for sexual impropriety, they imprisoned it for three days. And during that three-day period, they searched for a fresh egg throughout the land of Israel and could not find one. Because uh, uh, although, so, although it might appear to be a good idea to suppress the Yetzirah, the evil inclination for sexual impropriety, for any sexual activity, uh, the world can't live without it. There has to be that desire. There has to be that sexual desire. If it's gone, that signals the end of the world. Um, and they recognize, continues the Gemara, that since the inclination to reproduce was quashed, the chickens had stopped laying eggs. And they said, what should we do? If we kill it, the world, if we kill the Yetzirah for sexual impropriety, the world will be destroyed. If we pray for half its destruction, then nothing will be achieved because heaven does not grant half gifts, only whole gifts, which is something that we'll deal with in a second. What did they do? They gouged out its eyes, effectively limiting the power, and then they set it free. And this was effective to the extent that a person is no longer aroused to commit incest with his close relatives. Something that was, uh, something we, we, appears to us to be completely abhorrent. Um, but at the time of uh, the first base of Migdash, when the, uh, something else we can't understand, this Yetzirah to worship idols, um, there was also a terrible Yetzirah to have uh, sexual relations with your close relatives. So that, that is the story the Gomorrah is telling you. The story the Gomorrah is telling you is the reason why uh, Avodah Zorah was almost completely removed from amongst the Jewish people was because of this, this story here. And also part of the appeal uh, of certain types of uh, sexual activity that uh, were problematic and uh, endemic in the uh, in the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, which was incest, um, was also also effectively removed. So, um, two parts of the problem that affected the Jewish people that resulted in the destruction of Yerushalayim and dis- resulted in the destruction 
of Yehuda and the exile to Babylonia had been conquered, had been removed. Particularly uh, this Yetzirah, <coughs> this evil inclination for paganism. Now, that, that event alone we can see today because any clear-thinking man, um, no, one's got, no one thinks to themselves, you know, wouldn't it be nice to go to a Hindu temple and worship a, you know, worship the uh, worship Shiva or worship uh, uh, a Sikh god or to worship uh, worship Buddha? No one thinks like that anymore. But you have to understand that at the time of the first base of Migdosh and prior to that, there was a terrible Yetzirah in the world for Avodah for paganism, which was as powerful as the Yetzirah for sexual activity. The uh, power, the power of sexual attraction can be overwhelming. The power of Avodah the power of the yearning for Avodah um was equally overwhelming during that period. So much so that uh, the Gemara records a conversation between two Amoroim. Um, the Amoroim were discussing a particular um, uh, question regarding brochas. What brochas you make, with a brocha before, a brocha after, a brocha during, uh, eating particular types of food. And, during the, and they uh, couldn't agree. And during the night, one of the Amoroim was visited by King Manasseh. King Manasseh was a terrible king. He's one of the kings described by the Gomorrah and Sanhedrin as having no place in the world to come because of his uh, terrible behavior. He was a murderer. He murdered his own grandfather, the great prophet Isaiah. Uh, he was involved. He brought uh, Tzlomim. He brought idols into the base of Migdosh. He was a murderer. He was a philanderer. He, he, you name it. He was, he was it. And uh, he visited one of these Amoroim in a dream and told him what the halacha is. And um, this Amora said to him, you got a chutzpah, you King Manasseh, you're telling me the halacha? He says, you're a, an idol worshipper. He said, don't you criticize me. He says, you live in a world without the uh, Yetzirah for Avodah for paganism. I lived in a world, if you would have lived in my world, and you would have seen an, an idol, you would have picked up your robe and run, run to worship the Avodah So it's a different world. It's a different world we live in, and we can never understand the power of the Avodah um, But as Amalbin points out, and as this Gomorrah in, Yuvom, in uh, Yuma points out, uh, there came a point in time, at the time when the second base of English was built, that the yearning for Avodah amongst the Jewish people was extinguished. And, and partially, uh, the yearning for certain types of sexual uh, impropriety, particularly incest. Again, something we can't understand. We can't understand the idea of wanting to marry your sister. But um, uh, and during the time of the first base of Migdosh, this type of uh, sexual perversion was, uh, was commonplace. People sleeping with their children, with their... Uh, parents, uh, their, grand, their grandmother, and all sorts. I mean, you know, you, you can't really imagine how bad it was. Um, so that's the Gomorrah. <clears throat> that's what happened. And that, that signals, uh, of course, not now. We're, we're at a point in Yechezkel where, you know, none of this has happened yet. Where the base of Megish hasn't even been destroyed yet. But God's telling them. God's telling them in this verse 
there's going to come a time when you're going to regret all this. Not only are you going to regret all this, but you're going to do a U-turn. And the U-turn you're going to do is going to result in a rebirth of Judaism, a rebirth of learning Torah, and you won't even be able to understand why you did it in the first place. Succeeding generations will be unable to understand how you could possibly, how their previous generations could possibly have been slaves to this idea of paganism. So that's the Gemara. Um, there's a Medrash in Shira Shirim also discusses the, um, uh, the fact that Avodah Zorah, this, uh, this yearning, this seductive power of paganism was so popular. Uh, it's from the seventh chapter of Shira Shirim. And the Medrash there says that Avodah Zorah was eradicated amongst the Jews even before they returned to rebuild the second base of Mikdash. I've just told you the story from the Gemara Numa, um, which uh, would be indicative of the year, for example, 340, uh, the 340s through the 330s BCE. Again, well over 2,350 years ago. Um, but the, the Medrash says that uh, the Jews eradicated um, paganism as a cult among themselves um, well before they returned to rebuild the second temple. It occurred whilst they were still exiled in Babylonia. And the Medrash says as follows, Omer Abchonya, Omer Abdosa ben Tebes. God created two inclinations in his world. The inclination for idol worship and the inclination for sexual immorality. The inclination for idol worship had already been eradicated but the inclination for sexual immorality still exists. And God said anyone who can overcome the urge to engage in sexual immorality, I will grant them credit as though they had overcome both evil inclinations. So and, uh, it's interesting you brought down in halakhic, uh, in halakhic works that... Um, that uh, the, the, the idea of overcoming the urge for sexual impropriety, or, and of course the grass is always, whatever is forbidden fruit, becomes, becomes the most attractive uh, on the tree. We learn that from the very first story in the Torah, right? The very first story in the Torah is a story of, you know, the children, really the innocent children in the garden, Adam and Chava. So God built them a garden with a million trees in it. And uh, God said to them, you know, you can play with a million, all, the, all these trees. There's a million trees here. You can eat whatever you like from these trees. There's a million of them. There's two over there. Don't go anywhere near them. So, of course, as soon as you tell children that, you know, here's the toys, here's a thousand toys, you can play with all these toys except that one in the corner. So, of course, that's the one they want to play with. So, as soon as you're told you can't do something, the natural urge is to do it. You want to do it. That's what you want to do. You know, you're not interested in all the other toys. So uh, it's brought down in halakhic literature that people that have got the power to uh, overcome uh, sexual urges that uh, are inappropriate are given credit as if they've overcome the urges not only for sexual impropriety but also for avodah And the medrash continues. Uh, this medrash in Shir Hashim continues in the name of Rabbi Yehuda. Omar Rabbi Yehuda. This is an analogous to a snake charmer who had snakes. He charmed the large one and left the small one. 
and said, anyone who can overcome this small snake, I will ascribe to him credit as though he overcame both of them. So too, says Rabbi Yehuda, God eradicated the inclination for idol worship and left the one of sexual immorality. Anyone who overcomes the, the, the drive, the inclination of licentiousness, credit is attributed to him as though he overcame both of them. Um, so the Gemara, the Medrash asks, when was the inclination for idol worship eradicated? So the Gemara says, in the days of Mordechai. In the days of Mordechai and Esther, at the time of Purim, um, and uh, one other opinion is in the days of Hananiah, Mishal, and Azariah. Um, so there's two opinions there. But the the uh, historical dates are quite cl- close together um, because they both occurred during the 70 years of exile. But um, the story of, of Purim and Esther, or the story of uh, Hananiah, Mishal, and Azariah, who were thrown into the fiery furnace. So the Gemara says... Rabbi Benaiah's proof that the uh, inclination for Avodah Zorah was eradicated during the days of Esther and Mordechai during the time of the Purim story is, for, we see it in the Pasuk. We see it in the story of Esther um, after the evil decree by Homer. The Pasuk says in chapter 4 uh, of Esther in verse 3, Uvachol Medino Medina, and in every province, Mokom Asher Devar HaMelech Magia, Wherever the king's Achashverish's orders and edicts reached, Avel Godol le Yehudim, there was a great mourning for the uh, for the Jews, Vatzom uh, fasting, Ubechi and weeping, Umispeid and lamenting, Sak Vaefer, and they wore sackcloth and ashes, Yutsa Lorabim, by the majority of the people. Now that word, that word Larabim, says the Medrash, we see from the verse that most of that generation was righteous. Because the fact that the majority of the people donned sackcloth and ashes and engaged intensely in prayer indicates that Mordechai and Esther were not the only righteous individuals of that generation. And that almost everyone of that generation already, at the time of King Achashverosh, had rejected Avodah Zorah. So... The Gemara wants to deduce from this language of Megillah um, Sesta uh, that uh, the Jews had already rejected um, had already rejected the the whole notion of paganism even before they'd returned from the land of Israel. Um, the other opinion is that uh, it was at the time of Doniel, at the time of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's a famous uh, song about them. Uh, they were th- thrown into the fiery furnace. So the second opinion of the Medrash is that the inclination for Avodah Zor was eradicated during their time, during the story of Hananiah, Mishach, Mishol, and Azariah. And from our verse, and here in Yechezkel, because uh, unbeknownst to us at the moment, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are alive and well, living in Babylonia with, at the same time, Ezechezkel. And surprise, surprise, uh, which we're going to discover later as well, Daniel is alive and well and living in Babylonia at this time as well. And there's going to be, we'll see, there'll be interaction between um, these individuals and Ezechezkel. But... Um, uh, 
the Medrash wants to prove from our Apostle, Your survivors will remember me amongst the nations where they were taken um, captive. Says the Medrash, the word Pliteichem, your survivors, refers to Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, who were the survivors of the fiery furnace. And uh, why, why were they thrown into the fiery furnace? Because they refused to bow down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, even though they were warned by Yechezkel at the time that God might not perform a miracle to save them. We haven't come across this story yet, but we will do. So um, um, something that uh, uh, I hadn't mentioned, although it's going to become quite important later on in the book, is Yechesla is not alone here in Babylonia as a righteous individual and as a prophet, right? So um, he's uh, he's got he's in good company. Doniel is uh, around and about. Hananiah, Mishal, Mishal, and Azariah around and about, as are many other um, great leaders of the Jewish people that will eventually become um, that will eventually become members of the Anshe Knesset Agadola when the Jews return to the land of Israel um, in, from the perspective of where we are now in the story, in about 76 years' time. So, um, um, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah refused to bow down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, the statue of Nebuchadnezzar wasn't an Avodah it was, it was a statue uh, from the perspective of his own arrogance that he wanted people to acknowledge him not as a god. They wanted to acknowledge him as the uh, ruler of the world. But because of the fact that they thought that other Jews would think that they were bowing down, other people would think that they were bowing down to uh, a statue in the name of an Zorah, they uh, refused to do so, and they were thrown into the fiery furnace, and of course we know that they were saved. So whichever way you look at it, uh, whether it's the Gomorrah and Yuma is correct, that the Yetzirah for Avodah Zorah was eliminated after or during the rebuilding of the second base of Migdash, Migdash, or whether the Midrash in Shira Shirim is correct, that the Yetzirah for Avodah Zorah was eliminated during the Babylonian exile, either at the time of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or during the era of Mordechai and Esther, at the time of the Purim story, Whichever way you look at it, our verse here in Yechezkel points to a historical shift that takes place. And unfortunately, it takes place a little bit too late. But because it takes place after the Jews were exiled from Israel to Babylonia. And as I said again, it, the, the, one of the most amazing things is that it will never become a national cult again. No matter what the Avodah Zorah is. Uh, there'll be periods in history where certain Jews side with the Hellenists and certain Jews will side with the Romans. But there'll never be a national consciousness among the Jews ever again to, as a group, as a nation, uh, consider themselves to be pagan or be, be a group that uh, associates itself with pagan worship. That is never going to happen again. And that's the power of this verse. Um, the Tanakh narrative um, tells us that Avodah Zorah remained a constant threat during the first Beis Amigdash period. Um, 
But as we proceed to the time of the second brace of Middash, the Jewish people um, cease struggling with the temptation, as we've discussed. And that's what the Posuk means. The Nokotu Bifnehem El This is what Yechezkel is saying here. They will loathe themselves. They'll struggle with themselves regarding all the evil they committed and all the abominable deeds they did in relation to Avodah Zorah. Many other sins will remain a problem for the Jewish people until the end of days. Uh, uh, you only have to look at contemporary Israeli society, contemporary Jewish society in the diaspora, to know that there's, uh, you know, there's no shortage of problems among the Jewish world. No shortage. There's still plenty of uh, sexual impropriety. There's still plenty of corruption. There's still plenty of, unfortunately, ignorance of Judaism, um, especially here in Israel with the educational system. Um, the irony of uh, the Israeli educational system is most Jews in the diaspora have a better Jewish education than the, uh, than the uh, school children here in Israel, which is you know, one of the saddest things that you could ever, ever imagine. But... And, and the Jews will have many problems throughout their history, throughout their exile. They'll have problems with assimilation and intermarriage. And they'll have problems with uh, non-observance. And they'll have problems with Losh and horror, And they'll have problems with almost everything. But although many other sins will remain until the end of days, idolatry will not. Uh, and uh, in the Vilna Gorn, the Vilna Gorns, and this is this, the starting point from this is this pasuk, the Nakotu, this word. It's a, it's almost a promise from God that uh, he's as sick of our as we are, and he's prepared to to remove it, to remove it as a temptation, and he does. He removes it from the Jewish consciousness, and from this point in time, it's removed from the Jewish consciousness forever. And as the Gorn says, the Vilna Gorn's commentary on the Seder Olam, um, he connects the end of the inclination for idol worship with the termination of prophecy. Amazing drosha. It's a very long piece by the Vilna Gorn. I'm not going to give you the whole lot. But uh, he makes the point that the, the end of the inclination, the end of the desire, the end of the seductive power of Avodah coincided with the termination of prophecy on earth. They, they occur, 